Welcome back to our Beyond the Bulletin podcast, or as Gomer likes to call it, the podcast. Uh, your, your co-host here, I'm Stephen Lenahan, our Director of Communications and Development here at St. Anthony of Padua, and Gomer is our Coordinator of Evangelization, and we are joined again by our special guest, his wife says he's special anyways, uh, Brian Jones, our Coordinator of Liturgy. Shout out to your wife, uh, Michelle Jones. She's an amazing lady, woman of She God. is. Mm-hmm. Um, also on our, on our pastoral council. That's correct. And if she said it's that I'm special, then I am, because... There's a level of infallibility there. Really? <laughs> from, well, from wives in general. Yeah, but, well, that's true. Yeah, they, so. they do speak infallibly. <laughs> so what we want to talk about today <laughs> is something interesting that we're doing as a church, and we thought we would take about 20 minutes today to explore why we are doing this thing. And this thing is we are reinstituting a part of an old-school Catholic tradition which is after the end of the Mass, we pray the St. Michael, the Archangel prayer. And we are doing this to combat uh, the works of sin and darkness that are present in the church today, as is evidenced by the Summer of Scandal, which is a terrible, terrible... It was the Summer of Shame. Mm, it's both. It is both. And both and not either brings, or. <laughs> yeah, it is not an either or. Uh, and so the, the idea is ongoing acts of reparation from the heart of the, the liturgy, of the liturgical community, that we would um, keep doing this over and over again after our, at least after our Sunday Masses, if not after mm-hmm. all of our Masses. So we brought Brian here to discuss... Uh, where does the St. Michael the Archangel prayer come from? Why is it needed? Why did it stop being prayed in the church? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to expand it and talk about fun stuff like angels and demons. Angelology. And angelology. Which is a real term. Sounds like a made-up word. but It's, it's not. Yeah, it's there not. we go. It might be. <laughs> it might be a Franciscan <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, probably some liberal arts college in Ohio. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, but whenever I read, like, a book written by a demonologist, I'm like, okay, all right. All right, so, Brian, why don't you start <laughs> off, awkwardly enough, why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about um, Pope Leo mm-hmm. and where the St. Michael the Archangel prayer comes from. Yeah, so the the story is that uh, after Mass, uh, after he celebrated Mass, I think it was 1884, roughly, he had a, he collapsed, he had a vision of what um, he reported was Satan attacking the church with um, a whole host of demons. And one of the part of the uh, story entails a, a supposedly a conversation that was had between God and Satan about God allowing Satan for the next 75 to 100 years to have uh, greater influence in the church and in the world. So after, the, after Pope Leo XIII awoke from uh, this, you know, collapsing, he penned, the what we now know as the Saint Michael the Archangel prayer. Um, so the yeah, so the prayer was then along. It became part of what's known as the Leonine prayers, which included uh, three Hail Marys, a Salve Regina, and then it ended with the Saint Michael the Archangel prayer. And that existed in the church uh, from roughly 1884 to about 1965. And this is, I think, it's it's significant to point out that that what. 
that these are called the Leonine prayers and that Pope Leo had this vision because Pope yes. Leo, he's not talked enough. He's not talked about enough. I think in our parishes, yeah, he is, mm-hmm. he, his papacy really laid the foundation for all of the papacies since he was Pope. Yes. Yeah. Um, everything that he wrote was, was far ahead of its time. He had, he, he was, he was really a visionary truly. Yeah. Um, and we don't, he should be canonized by this point. I don't know why he's not. Yeah. It is weird. We have canonized almost every 20th century, Pope, right. not him. but not him. We've <laughs> so yeah. Pope Leo the 13th started the social justice encyclicals or the social encyclicals of the church with rerum novarum of modern things. And th- that document is powerful. It's specific. It's clear. It's potent. I remember, it, I yeah. remember actually reading rerum novarum in college for my Catholic social justice class at Franciscan university. And I remember reading it and almost like uh, it was, it was almost an emotional experience reading yeah. it because I was able to finally understand how I'm supposed to kind of put my faith into action, but also yeah. how the church views the world. And it really yeah. kind of changed. I would really say it kind of laid the foundation for even how I think politically um, yeah. in my life and, and kind of, you know, bringing my faith and my life into one instead of keeping them separate. Yeah. Yeah. And by politically, we mean active in the, in, in the world, not just Republican and Democrat and all this stuff, but taking right. our faith and it, towards the common good. So, um, Brian, so the church universally, the, the Roman rite of the Catholic Church, began praying these Leonine prayers mm-hmm. at the end of the liturgy mm-hmm. um, in order to combat what is, you know, basically this heightened spiritual warfare against the church. Many people talked about that being the 20th century. Right. Right. That in the 20th century, you know, we've never had more violence. There has never been more martyrs in the history of the church than in the 20th century. All of this stuff. Kind of crazy that the prayers came to an end in 1964 when in the West we would say that's where the West ditched the church. I feel sure. like that's when we should have doubled down on them, but well, maybe right. that's part of the problem. Right. Dun, 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 dun. Brian, tell us why, what happened with the church. Why did we ditch the prayers? So um, in 1964, the Vatican released a document which was a, a sort of a implementation guideline for – um, that that was connected to the Second Vatican Council's document on the Sacred Liturgy, which is called Sacro Sanctum Concilium, which just means, Mike, this Sacred Council. It's yeah. just the we were talking about this earlier. Uh, the Church names her documents, names everything by the first two or three words in that document. So Sacrosanctum Concilium literally means Sacred Council, and it's just a reference to Vatican II that was undergoing. But it is one of four constitutions uh, of the church, dogmatic constitutions, and this one focuses entirely on the liturgy, yep. and it is beautiful. Yep. I encourage you. I had to read it for my Vatican II text class in, in grad school. It is a beautiful document, and if you read it, you'll be like, wow, I had no idea this was in Vatican II. I thought Vatican II changed everything with the liturgy, but when you read this, you're like, huh, okay. Yeah. So what did, what did the later guideline documents say? Yeah, the, the guideline... Um for lack of a better term, suppressed the Leonine prayers. So you'll see when, when it's t- referring to, that's why I, I refer to it as the Leonine prayers, because that includes, again, the three Hail Marys, Salve Regina, and then the St. Michael prayer. Um, and there's lots of, you know, inner church debates about why it was potentially, you know, suppressed or removed. Um, I, I, I would say probably at one level, going back to what you said, Mike, um, the social cultural upheaval both within and without the church at that time it it i don't think it's necessarily surprising that it was sort of taken away 
um, because of the emphasis upon, you know, the immaterial realm, the, you know, angels and demons and good and evil. That had fallen out of vogue in a lot of seminaries well before the 1960s. A lot of the mm-hmm. um, rise of psychology and uh, psychoanalytical sciences yep. and stuff basically said there's no such thing as demonic possession. That, that belongs to a medieval church. These are mental disorders, even though the Bible actually in certain parts of the gospel makes a distinction between mental disorders and um, you know, what we would call today mental disorders. Right. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but and, and I've always been told or heard this, that like after a major council in the church like Vatican II or some of the other councils that you read mm-hmm. about church history, there's oftentimes like the like 40 years after a major council, a lot of confusion about what the council actually said yeah. um, at a universal level. And that's why I think there was a lot, there's a few decades there where sure. there was a lot of poor catechesis. Or no catechesis, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. is that idea, you know, sometimes you hear younger Catholics now say, like, they'll call themselves the JP2 generation, like raising their parents Catholic or whatever. You yeah, know? right. right. And, and that's not to, that's not to, you know, throw people, you know, older generations in the church under the bus. It's just the reality that there was poor formation or there was confusion about what that council was all about. Sure. Yeah. And I will say this the uniqueness of Vatican II added to that confusion that if, if it's, if it's, Traditional that a generation post a council struggles with confusion. The difference is Vatican II was a pastoral council, not a dogmatic council. So in all the other councils in the history of the church, Nicaea, Constantinople, Constantinople II, Constantinople III, all of these other councils, they were literally called to basically pronounce this is the right doctrine, this is the wrong doctrine. But Vatican II was looking at a Europe that had run from the church and it was like, what do we do in this new situation? So it wasn't about producing anathemas. Like if anyone holds to this doctrine, you know, two sentences and then they are condemned. A pox on your houses. Mm -hmm. The the anathema that is anathema sit, uh, the famous Latin phrase um, that was used at Council of Trent, which was uh, one of the major councils. That was all about like Protestant doctrines that can be and cannot be accepted in the Catholic Church. And it's just like, not this, not this. You can't say this. You can't do this. The Vatican II, it's like, here's these big pastoral documents. So after the council, these prayers were suppressed, mm-hmm. right? Correct. Uh, which is a heavy term to use, but uh, for lack of a better term, I mean, the reality was a lot of craziness was going on. Yeah. Now, why is it important for our church now to bring this particular prayer into play? Um, well, I think... Not even. I mean, you think uh, like Stephen had mentioned. You know, thinking of the history of when the prayers that were, all of them, the Leonine prayers were, you know, sort of inserted at the end of the mass. You also had the rise of all the 20th century totalitarian regimes, and you know the um, Fatima apparitions about Russia, and you know all of that, which could be a sub- separate podcast. But I think um, perhaps there was a misjudgment. In at the time after the council, that uh, or maybe even during it, that you know we're kind of in a time of uh, some some level of peace, even though there's yeah. social and political shifts going on in Europe. But you know, democracy is going on, and it spreading. was a huge age of optimism yep. in Europe following the devastation of World War II. France and Germany were no longer trying to kill each other; they were trying to work it peaceful operations and all of yep. this stuff, though the Soviet Union was large and the Iron Curtain was being built. This is in the early 60s, before yep. the sexual revolution, before right. campus riots, before Vietnam. And so there was a lot of optimism. And you can feel that optimism when you read Gaudium et Spes, which is yep. one of the, the, church, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Yeah. 
So I, I think there was we're we're obviously sort of talking about bringing and reinserting the prayer back at the end of mass in light of the scandal. But I think it's also just helpful to keep in mind, you know, the rise of all of those forces that are looking to undermine and potentially destroy the church, not just from without with secularism, but also as we're very aware now um, inside the church as well. So that's why we're bringing it back is to remember that ultimately, you know, Satan, like Neil Lozano says, right, Satan has a plan for your life and wants to destroy us. Um, It sounds scary, and it it is, but it's just a recognition that we need help because that's true. Um, So anyway, that's why we're looking to bring it back. Now, Stephen, why St. Michael? Why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, so um, even though I'm named after him, yeah, why don't yeah, you tell yeah. us? So you know, so you're, I, I think you're you're kind of moving into angelology, right? Yeah. And so um, this idea of there are different uh, there are different levels of angels, right? We we read about it in scripture. There's um, there's nine choirs of angels, um, and they each have a different role. And Saint Michael would be the highest of uh, ish of those those. <laughs> would you like to clarify, Gomer? Of the ranking of the nine choirs of angels, the highest is the seraphim, which in Hebrew means That's the right. burning ones. Yep. St. Michael is an archangel, uh, which is just above the rank of angels, which is guardian angels. So that, that the cherubim, seraphim, cherubim, throne, thrones, powers, dominions, dominions, principalities, powers. We probably should have opened up that scripture verse. <laughs> probably should have had some sort of list before we started this podcast. Yeah. But anywho, so St. Michael the archangel is one of three archangels mentioned in scripture. The book of Daniel says Michael, uh, the prince, he calls him a prince in heaven and other princes. So it references other, you know, kind of his rank. Um, the book of Revelation reintroduces us to Michael as making war against uh, the dragon, which is Satan and, uh, and the enemies of the church. And so St. Michael is always seen as this warrior spirit uh, angel, this warrior spirit coming and fighting on behalf of God's will and God's people. Why did you ask me the question? Because I <laughs> wanted to sound smart. And when Thank I- you for that. No, uh, set but, you up. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he set me up to make me look bad. Thank you for that. No, I, I think that it's important also when you look at um, when you look at the angels, you also have to look at the demons, right? Demons are, are fallen angels. They are those that rejected um, the vision, the will of God. Um, and so it's really important when you look at Scripture, like a lot of times we like to, especially in the, the postmodern world, to just kind of overlook angels and demons. It's just kind of been one of those things that's been forgotten in the church and, and the spiritual reality of what is going on is so often not talked about. Um, but the reality is, is there is a spiritual battle and we know who wins the battle. So the point of the St. Michael prayer, the point of invoking the angels and our guardian angels, you know, I pray the guardian angel prayer every night with my son. Um, the point of that is to call this spiritual reality into our lives and to, to get on the right side of that battle. Because if you read through scripture, you know how the battle ends. That's not what's in question, which is kind of cool. You know, there's not a lot of times we know the end of a, a battle that's currently going on, but in this case we do. And so we want to be on the right side of that as Christians and as Catholics. And that's why we should be praying this prayer. Um, and that's why we're adding it back at t- to mm-hmm. the end of the mass right now. But really you could, you could be praying that prayer at any point. Yeah. And I think one big question or one big uh, point of emphasis that we need to have is this notion that the reason why we're skittish talking about demons and the devil and all this stuff is because it is very easy for people to become superstitious about this stuff Mm. to the point of silliness. 
where there's a demon, a devil in every bush, a demon around every corner. Right. And there's an element of um, blame, like projecting blame away from myself and onto dark forces that are well, out it's there. It's not Pokemon Go. Right. <laughs> it's just not. Like, that, like as a kid, what that was that? always my image of like angels and demons is like Pokemon Go. Like, I can only see him if I had this like special like camera phone or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, the uh, but the reality is there is over and over again in scripture this reality is testified to. But there ha- we can very easily distort it and I've known people who are very spiritual who tend to take these like superstitious roles uh the greatest line of all is michael scott from the office i'm not superstitious but i am a little stitious yeah. right so that's that's part of you know the, the um you know people looking at schizophrenia and other personality disorders you know with a pre-scientific notion of being like oh they're possessed and stuff um that is not what we're talking about what we are talking about is addressing the element of of the reign of darkness the reign of sin and the dark powers behind evil that unfolds. So we're not saying, oh, these priests, oh, it's all demons and stuff. We're not denying culpability to the evilness the church is suffering. What we are saying is we want to combat it, not just with the arm of the law, not just with good policies and regulations and reform, but also with direct spiritual combat. And St. Michael the Archangel has been placed as the prince of the heavenly host to thrust Satan back into hell. It's also, we got to remember that we're spiritual beings. Yeah. Yes, we are physical, we are human, but the, our soul is is a spiritual um, being, and that's something that um, sometimes, again, we, we forget so often in the church. I'll tell you, honestly, in my own life, the time, this this is getting really personal, but like the time where I really kind of recognized that spiritual side of humanity was being at my my father's deathbed. Um, when, when he passed from this life in, into eternal life, and we were praying the St. Michael prayer, the Hail Mary, we were actually praying the rosary, um, that was one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had, even to the point of being similar to, to being in adoration. Um, and I think it was that recognition of the reality that we are both soul and body. And that when we, at the end of our lives, we have to face that reality that we're going to be taken up soul into heaven and, and judged. Yeah. yeah. Pope John Paul II has this great line in his poem, Roman Triptych, where he says, I die, and yet I do not altogether die, but that which is immortal in me remains. Um, Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about the nature of, of angels, so human beings are a hylomorphic reality. Yeah, I said it. Put that. Is, on that, is that a Greek? God, your words it, it, are so big. I'm so glad I'm on here to keep the balance right. Like, <laughs> I just we, can't even. We uh, can't have just Latin and Greek. We yeah. need English. Yeah, <laughs> we I, need English. I am the vernacular. Co-host, <laughs> That's right, if you will. That's right. Well, that was actually kind of a big word. That is. That <laughs> is. What does that mean? But Brian is the sacrosanctum to my concilium. So Brian, why do? <clears throat> What's the translation? <laughs> Edit. Uh, so, Brian, yeah. why don't you talk a little bit about like the nature of angels as it compares to humans sure. uh, through the theology of the great angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas himself? Absolutely. Um, I'll keep it as simple and as short as, as possible. Hylomorphism. Yeah, hylomorphism. Uh, so, it, Stephen said Nerds. Nerd alert, your red flag should be going up now. Um, so it actually relates to Stephen's comment about, you know, human beings as spiritual. So we are body and soul, or if you want to get technical, we're form and matter, right? Um, and angels are, uh, I know, Mike, Stephen, you guys awake? Yeah, we're here. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) Uh, Where are we? Uh, angels are, they are, uh, as St. Thomas says, they are immaterial. They're non-bodily. Um, so what that means is, um, and there's, 
uh, a, a sort of a tradition. We think about, um, you know, Stephen said that there are um, good angels and then there's fallen angels. And so you wonder how could angels be fallen, right? Because since angels exist outside of time, they can see the result of an action at the moment that it's decided. Whereas human beings can't, right? If I'm going to, this is prudence, right? I'm going to, what should I do? X, Y, or Z. I'm going to do Y, but I don't know what the result is going to be of my action in the future. Angels, because our limit there is our body and we are in time. Angels are non-bodily. They're outside of time. Therefore, when something is done, they simultaneously see what the result will be, which makes their choice against God that much more um, horrific because they know that in choosing against God, what their fate will be. Yeah, so I had a wonderful conversation with a person who came to my office and said, why, why should I be Catholic, right? And he just asked me a million questions that were all great questions. And a lot of people, if they push it far enough, will come to this question of Satan, the devil, you know, all this stuff. And one of the things in being named Michael, I've always had a fascination with St. Michael the Archangel and other stuff. But the angels, the word angel is a uh, comes from the Greek word angelos, just it just means messenger. Mm-hmm. So when we say evangelization, we are saying eu in Greek means good, and that angelos meaning news, good news, good message, right? And so angels are that that's what St. Thomas Aquinas would say, that's what they do. They're messengers. What are they? They are pure intelligence, right? They are intelligence and will. They are beings that do not have a body like we do. And because they don't have those limitations, their knowledge is far greater than our knowledge. So how do we learn? Well, first we take in things through our senses and our, you know, we kind of figure things out and we kind of go through this stuff. And when we want to make an act, uh, when we want to make a decision, um, our brain, in, in order to come to truth, has to go through a whole series of processes. For angels, they don't do that. And so St. Thomas Aquinas, he's called the angelic doctor because he wrote so much and so beautifully and comprehensively on the angels, and especially how do they act and know. And one of the crazy things he said is by them, by engaging in, uh, in knowing something, they know all the way those that, they know everything about that thing. They have a, a more perfect and complete knowledge. So we have to take in objects through our senses and figure things out. Just by intellectually grasping it, they comprehend the whole thing. So for an angel to, from the first moment of its existence, to reject the God that he's made for, an angel has perfect knowledge of the consequences of his actions. So Satan, in, you know, Lucifer, in rejecting God, is irredeemable, unlike us, is irredeemable. Because it wasn't like Eve didn't choose to absolutely reject God. She just put herself in the number one spot. Satan absolutely rejected God, so there is no redemption of the angels, right? There is only the redemption of us because, you know, Eve was deceived, because there is this lack of perfect knowledge. Now, combine that with our spiritual life. The devil is not happy with Christian salvation. It's not happy with the gospel. It's not happy with people coming to salvation, knowing God, being, receiving the love of God in their lives. And so what he wants to do is prevent that from happening. So that's why we turn to spiritual combat in appropriate ways. And the best is through the traditions of the church, like the St. Michael, the Archangel Prayer. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Stephen alluded to it as well. I mean, and I mentioned it in the previous podcast, the the notion of the snare, protect us from the wickedness and the snares of the devil. So two things you keep in mind, how terrified Pope Leo XIII was at the vision. He was... 
terrified almost unto death. And yet one of the things that supposedly he heard in the vision was, you know, the fact that Satan's reign will be granted. It's sort of a, a, an irony. God will allow him more power, but he will pour out more grace. So in giving him more power, he's going to, it, it's just a further indictment against him that you, you can't win. You know, you've already lost. And that's why Pope Leo calls it a snare, because a snare is either, as you said earlier, Mike, a stumbling block, a stronghold, or it is temptation to sin. And that those are the only ways that we can be allow um, Satan to harm us is he, he can't alt because Christ has won the ultimate victory at being on the right side. We join in Christ's victory, but we, if we allow those strongholds or the temptation to take over us, you know, then we'll, we'll be going up the paddle without a Creek. Yeah. St. Augustine describes Satan after Christ's cross as a big old angry dog that's chained. And the only way you can ever get bit is if you go towards him. Yep. Right. Um, Stephen, what were you going to say? I was going to say, this has been very informative. Right? I'm telling you. My mind is blown right now. <laughs> and I took angelology in college. It's just been a few years. So, yeah. uh, no, I, I think um, I think it's good. I'm, I'm excited that we're bringing this prayer um, back to Mass right now mm-hmm. at St. Anthony's. I think it's I think it's so important for us, you know. Um, and it'll be this weekend, right? It'll be this weekend, this yeah, weekend. starting immediately. So this weekend, we're recording this, probably not going to go up immediately. So um, the, the starting in the second Sunday of September, we're going to be plowing through um, mass with this notion of having St. Michael the Archangel prayer in yeah. our, uh, at the end. I do want to say um, a friend of mine who trains exorcists and is a part of this Vatican, new Vatican thing that Pope Francis started of, um, of exorcists, he's a layman. He has this great line where he says, a lot of people obsess over things like exorcism and possession and all that stuff. He said, those are extraordinary. Hollywood. Hollywood. They're extraordinary. They're extremely rare. He says, the ordinary they form. They do happen, though. Yes. The ordinary form of the demonic in your life is temptation. Yep. But that doesn't sound sensational. Like, I remember he, he did this whole talk, and he builds up and builds up, and he says, and then it's temptation. Everyone's like, well, yeah, whatever. He's like, no, think about it. Temptation is for you to destroy your own soul, right? And then he said, but this is the coolest thing. And for a guy who has a website called layevangelist.com, you'll see why. He has a Shameless uh, buy my book, a website seen by dozens. He says the ordinary way to combat the devil, the ordinary way to combat the devil, which is the most effective, is not exorcism, but evangelization to spread the gospel. And he said, in fact, when he works with priests who are doing the exorcism prayers, the whole point of the prayers is to beat down the presence of the demonic so that the individual can hear the gospel. So his role as a layperson. I mean, that's what baptism is, right? Absolutely. Bapti- baptism is a form of exorcism. That's why we don't wait yeah. in the Catholic Church. Why would you want to withhold that from your child? That's why we have infant baptism. Yeah, and we have an anointing of oils and all this stuff. It's all a part of these exorcism rites. But I, as someone who runs RCIA, people don't know this. When we do the Lenten scrutinies, there are the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent. There are exorcism prayers that we pray over because we believe that they do not belong to the kingdom of God, that they are being transferred from the kingdom of dark, dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God, as uh, St. Paul talks about in Colossians, through faith in Jesus and through baptism. And we pray exorcism. So I always tell them, I'm like, guys, get ready. We're going to pray. We're going to go through an exorcism. You know, right? I love, I, one time I was, uh, I was leading a retreat up at Gonzaga University in, in Spokane, Washington, and I met a young woman there who um, 
had decided that she wanted to become Catholic. And the reason she said her conversion story was because she had seen all these things where any time in a movie where like a demon or the devil or somebody like that, a dark spirit showed up, they always called the Catholic priest. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I was like, it's so Good insightful. Point. Like they never call like a Baptist minister. They never call, not that there's anything wrong with those people, but it's like there, she was like, there's gotta be something here, some sort of a power here in, in the prayers of the church. And I was like, that is a beautiful Weird, but beautiful conversion story. Yeah, yeah. And maybe later we could talk about that stuff. If, yeah. if our listeners want to know That's more. That's right. I want to know more. Yeah. Well, well, maybe on a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got to wrap it up, guys. Got to wrap it up. So thank you all for joining us for this special episode. The St. Michael the Archangel Prayer, we encourage you. Google it, download it, pray it every day. Pray it for the church. Pray it for those. We traditionally... Pray for your family and yourself. Absolutely. We all need this. As a staff, our... Um, we pray every Tuesday uh, at noon. We say the Angelus. Um, we pray the St. Francis Peace Prayer. Uh, we pray a prayer for our clergy. And then we say the St. Michael the Archangel Prayer. As the Department of Faith Formation, we do this every day, uh, weekday. We've been doing this for like three years. And the reason why we say it is we say for the persecuted church, for those battling addictions. But for now, it's also going to be in reparation for you know the, the, the scandal of the church and against the the dark forces that are out there. And I would I would have to say I think it's saying those together as a staff has really transformed our staff in yeah, a lot of ways. Absolutely. Which has been really great. So Absolutely. All right, well, this has been an awesome episode. Uh Leo 9. Leo 9 prayers. Leo Remember nine. that. Look it up. Put that in your brain somewhere. Uh <laughs> but we really appreciate everyone listening in and now that you have survived this episode, I encourage you to go sit down, have a glass of wine. Yeah. But look behind you, there's a devil! Ah!